today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift, I'm joined by Michael Miotti, the Executive Director of the Washington State Achievement Council, a cabinet-level state agency. Their mission is to raise educational attainment through strategic engagement, program management, and partnerships. Michael and I discussed the need to increase post-secondary enrollment, create an affordable environment, increase student success and completion, and to provide more comprehensive student supports, especially for low-income and first-generation students. Let's join in the conversation and learn what Washington is doing to address these needs for their students. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Higher Ed Shift. I'm your host, Amy Glynn, VP of Student Financial Success with Campus Logic. Today, I am joined by Michael Miotti, the Executive Director at the Washington State Achievement Council. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Glad to be here, Amy. I'm so excited to have you and to be able to start talking about some of the amazing things that are going on in Washington. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do this on site. Like that's got to be my my next season initiative is to be able to have all of my interviews on location. I'm going to hit the road. <laughs> well, we'll give you. We'll give you. This is a wonderful location, but you get. We'll get you here during the season. It's not likely to rain. That would be the best time. Absolutely. I will tell you, I made the mistake. I picked Seattle for spring break a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic. And someone was like, do you know what the weather's like in Seattle in March? (laughs) (laughs) We got super lucky. Yeah. Can you introduce yourself to listeners and share a little bit about your background and the Achievement Council? Yeah. So I came out to Washington five years ago to lead lead the organization. I spent prior to that, I lived my entire life in Connecticut on the East Coast, but, you know, lots of travel around the country and the world for different reasons. But I, you know, like people of my now, unfortunately, advanced age, I grew up during the 60s as a young kid. So whether it was, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones and the British rock invasion or the tragic, you know, things of like the assassination of JFK, Martin Luther King, Rob, Bob, Bobby Kennedy, the swirl of government and politics, you know, which was very much about the civil rights effort. And that really shaped who I was. And that's why I wound up by the time I got out of college in the mid seventies, I went right into law school and I'm a lawyer who has been fascinated by politics and government and social change and social improvement. And I went through a variety of steps, but somehow doing many different things, including elective office, leading nonprofits, being a corporate lawyer, all the rest, I wound up in higher education in Connecticut about 14 years ago. That's amazing. I always love to hear, you know, those of us in access and in higher education, there's always a story that connects it to us. So I I love kind of hearing that journey and how the era shaped you and, and your drive to political change. So what is the Washington Student Achievement Council? We are a state higher education agency, and okay. the on uh, the and so it's a that's that's a nice simple statement. We, by the way, are the most unusually named state higher education agency. Most have more intuitive names like the Higher Education Commission. Right in, in Connecticut, I was the I was the commissioner of the Department of Higher Education. Some states have a higher education coordinating board, which is what there used to be in, in Washington until about 12 years ago, and that was restructured and it became the Student Achievement Council, in part, I think, to put a greater emphasis on 
both student success, but also the interconnection between high school, uh, you know, K-12 pathways and, and, and post-secondary, even though we're also very much involved in volunteer adults. So one of the things I, you know, people in volunteer education is, is important to sort of understand is there's a big difference between how states organize themselves around K-12 education and higher education, right? Yeah. So every state in the country has a state education agency on the K-12 side, because that's your conduit for the whole federal process of funds and regulation, special education, et cetera. There's really nothing on the federal side that is as clearly sort of compels states to organize themselves in that way, right? So only about half the states have what in some pirate lingo are called a coordinating board, which means generally we don't have much authority to tell people or colleges or whatever what to do. There have been different responsibilities. There are different levers. It's very different in each of the different states where this exists. But it's it's obviously it's more been more focused on college and college going, and that's been its bread and butter. And I, I'm sure we're going to chance to get into a more detailed conversation about what does that actually mean. Because one of the things that when you ask most people is what is state higher education policy? We could talk about workforce development. We could talk about K-12. We could talk about environmental protection. We could talk about worker safety. And there's a lot of intuitive policy domains in many of those areas. And the state higher education level, it's like, yeah, what do you mean? What is, what is a state higher education policy? It's a huge, broad, open for interpretation space. Yes, yes, yeah. So help us maybe understand, because I honestly was not aware that every state did not have a similar council for higher education. So right. What does your life and your staff's life look like on a on a day-to-day basis? What what type of initiatives or goals build your your framework or, or the direction you go? Well, there is wide variation across the states in terms of what these agencies look like. It's very common but not universal among entities like us that we actually run any state financial aid program. We may also be the state entity that manages the federally funded gear up program, because in the gear up world, a college readiness program that's been around for decades, there's usually campus programs and a state program. And a lot of my sister agencies around the country run this just as we do the state version. We're a little bit different in that we also run the 529, the state 529 college savings plans. Many states, those are lodged in the treasurer. Yeah. But our what, what really has emerged in the last 15 years, which is really about the time I, I sort of just happened to stumble into being involved in higher education in 2008, when all of a sudden there was this big pivot going on in which it used to be viewed as like, what they meant when they say coordinating boards was you coordinated the colleges and universities, particularly the public college universities, in terms of how they responded to public needs. So the, the frequently the agencies would have the ability to license academic programs, right? And it would be the notion among the public programs that, well, we only need so many nursing programs to supply enough nurses for our workforce, which just think that you could ever have had that conversation because it's the complete right. opposite now, right? <laughs> but, but, but you would say like, okay, you know, we don't need every community college, every four-year university or nursing program, and here's the right optimal size for our state, and therefore we're going to license things, we're going to do license for quality. Oh. Most of that, that exists in some states, but that, and that used to be the central part of agencies like that, that has gone by the board's. In many ways, particularly, you know, I think here in Washington, clearly, and it even happened in Connecticut, where I was for to be replaced by the notion of the really big picture sense of state higher education policies. We need to have better opportunities for post-secondary education of all kinds 
Some things we call career, some things we call apprenticeship, some things we call college. We need more success for more students across all of those pathways for their own benefit and for the collective benefit of our states, economy, prosperity, success, and all the rest. So I know as you're looking to do that, you start to identify the challenges that are impeding that progress for our students. Right. What are some of of the unique challenges or the challenges in general that you guys have identified in Washington that are blocking that that access and completion? Right. So one thing that's important in any conversation about this is to understand that, you remember I said back in 2008, I was coming in at a pivotal point for agencies like this. The whole country, all of higher education has been in one of those pivotal points now for, for two decades, really. And, and, and in the long stream of history, pivotal points don't last seven months, right? I mean, they, or two years. They, it takes a while to go through these transitions. And so we went through a period of time from after World War II until about the mid-90s when nationally, the number of people going into becoming students higher education was growing and growing, not only in total count, but as a percentage of particularly think of high school graduates, this is not all about high school graduates, but they've, they've always been the bellwether, the foundational element of college enrollment still are today. Right. So you saw this ever climbing what the demographers would call participation rate in higher education. But in the nineties, it started to flatten out. There are also this, the other thing that people sometimes just aren't aware of is that even though the country's population may grow every single year, year after year after year, the size of the age groups or cohorts within that population shift and change independent of the overall growth, right? So the, if the 18-year-old cohort at any given time actually could be shrinking, stagnating while overall national population is going up. And we've, we're actually now in a long period of time. But so the, the, the key point I'm trying to make is to understand that we had a 40-plus year history of hyper growth in college enrollment. We got nowhere near universal. This is not, and we never achieved what was achieved in the high school movement of the early 20th century. When we went from high school was a tiny minority of students to high school became a universal American experience for 16-year-olds, for example, right? And so we are now facing a a built sort of, it's not not momentum, it's like lack of momentum. And I'll give you an example in Washington. So 60% of our high school seniors go on to college within a year of graduating. It has been stuck at 60% for over 20 years, right? The national average is, is actually higher, which is great consternation for Washington, but the national average has been flat for a long time as it has been in most states. So we come at this, and I'll, I'll give you this quick intro to our strategic framework, and then we can talk about any parts that you want to. So we recognize if we're going to come out of this pivot into a positive world, right, that there's we have four strategic clusters, and we have equity cutting across everything because of equity and especially the racial ethnic divides are just a massive, persistent, pervasive issue in all of this work, right? So our strategic clusters are enrollment. We need to increase enrollment, not just by body count, but by percentage that participation rate notion. We need to maintain, Washington has a very affordable environment for our education. It can be more affordable, but we need to have an affordable environment. We need to increase student success. In the higher ed world, we usually use the word completion as a tagline for that. And the fact of the matter is, is that unfortunately we lose more, higher ed loses more students to, to departure, dropping out, whatever you want to call it, than high schools do in this country, right? So we definitely, if you, it's, if you go, we really need to help support those students complete. And then our fourth strategic cluster is kind of a new one in these conversations. We call it student supports. That refers to a recognition that for low-income students, 
that they have many needs outside of just meeting the tuition bill, whether it's housing, transportation, childcare, all sorts of other needs. Those needs distract them from the ability to be successful students or to be able to go at all in the first place. So we talk about and, and so we talk about enrollment, affordability, completion, and student supports as our four strategic clusters, the pillars of our work. And in everything we do, we we look at it through the lens of of, of equity. I love that and feel like our show should be hours long so we can dig into every one of those clusters. But I'm going to ask you a question that is akin to asking you to choose your favorite child. Right. And so I would love to have you pick any one of the clusters and just talk about one or two, and we can pick them from different ones of the initiatives right. that right. you guys have in progress to address, say, like, I love, let's start with the affordability. I'd love to have you share just some of the initiatives and like, how is it going? Where are you guys seeing success? Where are you seeing struggles that you never thought you would see? Right. Well, the first, of course, all of these things are interconnected. So yeah. Even though you're, and, 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 and as you know, as you mentioned about the favorite child, th- there is no favorite child or favorite cluster, but at different points in time, one has to put more attention on one child or the other, right? Yeah. For, for understandable reasons. Sometimes they're good reasons. Sometimes they're sad or bad or challenging reasons, right? So, the, and, and they are, and like I said, they are all connected because obviously it's hard to increase enrollment unless you have an affordable environment, you know? Whatever. Exactly. Yes. You know, <laughs> and it's hard to have more student success unless you're enroll- enrolling more students, you know? Yep. But in affordability, it's a fascinating, you know, sort of thing that bedevils people in Washington because Washington's commitment to affordability goes back a long time, right? Washington has state financial aid that is so generous. When I've talked about it to national audiences in higher education, they they are just completely convinced they're mishearing me, right? And they ask questions and they just are astounded that yeah. no, yes, indeed, this is the case, right? So our state financial aid grant. We, we have like many, you know, there's a maximum grant, it's income-based, right? There's a maximum grant. And then to, to deal with the, you know, the tapering down of eligibility, there is then a prorated downgrade. Our maximum grant equals tuition and fees at any public university or college in the state, right? Wow. So if you qualify for our maximum state financial aid grant, which is called the Washington College Grant, you will, you will not have to pay tuition or fees at University of Washington, Washington State University, the, the regional four years, or any community or technical college in the state. And that maximum grant, it goes up until about a third of the state's households by income. So you can be making around a family of four, you can be making around $60,000 in the sense you have free college, as that term free college is used around the country. Obviously, it doesn't have anything to do with that student supports issue we talked about before, because you still got to worry about yeah. housing, food, transportation, right? But the college bill itself for you is free. And it's been kind of that generous for a long time. But one of the wrinkles was it was never an entitlement. So we, for years, had tens of thousands of people who would be eligible, would apply, because all you have to do is fill out a FAFSA. There's no special form for Washington State Financial Aid. You'd fill okay. out a FAFSA and you'd get your Pell Grant, but you might get nothing from the state because the cupboard was bare, right? The money, you were a little too late in line. The money had run out, you know, whatever. And three years ago, Governor Inslee and the legislative leadership they changed this. They took the old kind of name state need grant and turned it into the name, renamed it the Washington College Grant, right? Which is a little, little snappier, right? But they made it an entitlement. They also included apprenticeships for the first time and they made it all just a little bit more generous. 
But what befuddles everybody is here we have, and by the way, we don't offset against Pell. So if you are a community college student and your grant will pay for tuition and fees and you get a $6,000 change Pell grant, you keep the $6,000 Pell grant, right? You can keep that for some of these student support issues that we're talking, housing, food, which, which is something that a lot of states miss. Like oh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and that's why we're struggling yeah. with yeah. housing insecurity, food insecurity, because right, it's right. it's a last dollar thing. Right. Yeah. That's that's the big lingo on financial aid, first dollar, last dollar. Yeah. Most 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 places you hear of a finance of a free college program, it's a last dollar, which means it's free once you cobble together federal and state aid, all right. and perhaps institutional campus aid all in one, right? Yeah. But here in Washington, it means it means basically you basically have no tuition bill, even though unfortunately the way business offices and all this work, you're still going to get a bill <laughs> and you may not have your financial aid commitment yet, which is a big problem, which we hope to be able to work on. But despite that incredibly generous environment, we have this lower college going rate out of high school. And we are one of the lowest states in the country for the rate of high school seniors who fill out the FAFSA, which is the federal form, federal application form for financial aid, which is what we have. We've always had a single single point of entry. Many states do have a separate application form you have to fill out for their state aid. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. And, and if you want to get that state aid in Washington, you just apply to your campus the way you would for any financial aid and they award it to you. There's no separate form. You don't have to deal with a state agency, you know, whatever. Ah. You know, so, yeah. so why do you think that is? Like, well, why? I think, I, yeah, I think it shows that, which I think is an important lesson for people to learn, particularly public policymakers. I used to be an elected, I used to be an elected state senator in Connecticut a long time ago. Right? Okay. You know, so I'm one of them. I'm not calling out people. Who I was going to say I've, you're one I've of the bad there. guys. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there and done that. I mean, it, it, sometimes we have this, uh, what I think is simplistic thinking that this is, oh my God, then this simply must be the people don't know about this. And only if they knew about it, maybe they need to know about it in September or October of senior year and everything will change for them. Right. Yeah. And the reality is we know life is much, much more complex. Um, now, obviously, as the country built up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and you know, whatever, as enrollment participation went up, yes, for those people, it may simply have been an information gap, right? And once they knew the information, they were able to act on it. But the issues that prevent people from going to college now or or again, a career technical ed program or whatever, these days there's far more complexity to it. There are far more obstacles and barriers. Simply providing people with information will not get them there. That's why we have, we're embarking on a whole new set of what I would call policy-based practice initiatives in partnership with people all over the state to try to change this and to get at the more complex roots of the problem than simply the notion that it's an information gap. Can you give us an example of what one of those is? Sure. So there's a couple couple of different layers to this. One is there's been some interesting work out of the University of Michigan. They launched a program called HAIL, H-A-I-L, which I know has something to do with their fight song, which I'm not all that familiar with. And they were basically guaranteeing free college to a to a targeted population that they were sending communications to in high school, right? And it's been studied by you know Professor Susan Donarski, who's one of the best people in this field. And it showed, interestingly enough, it didn't just help increase enrollment at University of Michigan among low-income students. It, the, it increased the likelihood that they would go to higher education of any kind, including community colleges, right? So there's this notion that the mere access 
the possibility of access to free college is not enough if there's this unknown series of hoops like FAFSA and others that you have to jump through. But if we guarantee it to you that that can be for a certain population, this doesn't change everything, but for a certain population, it's a game changer. So we have already gone down the path of saying that financial aid, state financial aid in Washington can be awarded on the basis of the family being in the federal food, it used to be called food stamp program, and there's the SNAP program. So you don't have to apply again. If your family just won't fill out the FAFSA, you can still get state financial aid and go to college for free in Washington, right? We just through this legislative session, bill got passed that will enable us working in partnership with high schools and others to provide a certificate, whatever exactly that means, digital or otherwise. But we'd be able to tell people as early as the second half of 10th grade that you have free college because we know your family's in the SNAP program or TANF, the Temporary Assistance Needy Families, other public assistance programs, in which we know that if you're eligible for those based on the federal standards, you're going to meet the income standards for, for a college grant. So, whatever. And I mean, we still hope they fill out the FAFSA. We still hope they get Pell, but we know there's some people that that may just not be possible. So, we'd rather have them go than not go. And at the same time, we think if, if, if our guarantee gets you in the door, then the college can help you overcome the FAFSA problem more likely, you know, later on. uh, There's a whole nother bottle work, which actually will, this will ultimately all cross over. We're strong believers in the fact that the, 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 what shapes people's decisions is the experiences in the environment in which they live, work, and study. So it's on the ground, it's local. It is brutally difficult, if not impossible, for state governments to change local environments at scale across the state. So we just got approved again in the same legislative session, both the statutory framework to create a challenge grant fund, and we got $6 million in this next year's appropriations, but a but a forecast for an additional 16 million in the following biennial budget to make grants to local cross-sector, cross-institutional partners to support career and college going and to do it with innovation and to do it with us in a way that we learn through innovation what works and maybe what doesn't. And what we're trying to do is tap the power of some non-traditional partners. So obviously schools need to be involved, colleges need to be involved, what about the community nonprofits that serve individuals and families, whether they're adults or students, whether it's Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys Clubs, Girls Club, Girl Scouts, YMCA, a group that particularly serves Latino or Latina populations? You know, and we want to see them in partnerships so that they're pulling together and also helping to change the leadership perspective, the community leadership perspective on the ground. Yeah. I, I mean, those, those community partners are the ones that are interacting, like you're saying, with with the families and the individuals on a daily basis. And when you, you think about that mindset shift, there are certain people that due to societal limitations, financial limitations, inequities that we've had where they just don't think they're college material, whatever yeah, that yeah. means. Yeah. And I, I think you're, doing something that's amazing here in trying to get in on a different level with them, change that perspective, but also show that like post-secondary education, to your point, it doesn't mean that you have to go get a four-year degree, right? There's, there's technical training, there's certification, there's, there's other opportunities that we need to expose and educate about to start to 
to break that barrier, kind of that, that cap that, right, like, right. like you guys have said right. that you're sitting kind of at the same percentage now for like 20 years, right? Like right. Right. breaking through, we need to do something different. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, that's why, I mean, one of the benefits, I mean, I've had a wild and crazy career across so many different areas, but in, in the years before I got into higher education, I led one nonprofit that had youth development programming in it. And so we were working with, with urban teens and even slightly you know, younger than teens uh, in after school and summer programs. And I was exposed to the way the youth development community thinks about supporting young people who are often marginalized yeah. you know, from the formal institutions of their schools and et cetera. We also, I've also been exposed to parent empowerment work you know, in the same kind of communities and neighborhoods for the adults, the parents or yeah. caregivers or those, those people. You know, and even been in, in on the other side of the, the magical you know glass window and in, in very seriously conducted focus groups and the like. And it, it is a wake-up call for those who think that this is the work of educators alone. We need to recognize there's a substantial number of, of our fellow Americans, you know, of young people, parents, and whatever, who may not trust the formal educational establishment, be it a high school or a college as the best messenger on some of these issues. In fact, we do know, unfortunately, too many students in high school, and even indirectly, by the way, colleges do admissions, to be honest with you, and enrollment, is the messages out there that you you have to be good enough, right? We're very watchful as to whether you are good enough, right? That, that comes out of the whole culture, what I call the myth of admissions in a world in which increasingly most colleges are will, will, will admit 80, 90, 95% of who applies, right? So we really do have to bring other voices, where we call the you know trusted messengers into yep. this mix to help these populations see these opportunities in a different light, not be held back by the by the status quo messages they get. No, absolutely, and you know we do we do a lot of work with institutions in California, as an example, and this is a place that they are struggling and constantly trying to overcome when you look at their dream student population is overcoming that mistrust of the federal system and what they think is going to happen in applying for state aid and with the institution. And, and I think the, the only way, like you're saying to, to start to do that is to get people into those communities that they trust and that they'll listen to. Because we can right. say all the time, like, no, apply for this, apply for this grant, right? And and the only thing you're going to do is get an advantage. But when people have been mistreated or taken advantage of in the past, it's hard to get them generationally to trust in right. the change right. that's out there. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing in this work as you dig just to dig deeper. And in fact, in anybody's work, I'd say, there's always a great value to getting out there and having random contacts because you never know what you're going to learn as you know, you, you, I get into many conversations where I don't have a checklist of what I was trying to get out of the conversation. I'm just going to meet someone, learn about their environment, what goes on in their world. I stumbled onto something within the last year or so, which was an eye popper for me. One of our four-year public universities in the state, which we call under the category of what we in higher call a regional university, right? They told me that 30% of their admitted high school seniors from Washington high schools were not going, continue on to higher ed anywhere a year after, right? So think of it this way. Now, the, for those who aren't familiar with our data systems, all the rest, and any, any high school, any college in the country can understand the future 
post-secondary pathways of their students by using something called the National Student Clearinghouse, right? So what this college did is what many do is they just sort of take a look at the national, they use the National Student Clearinghouse to see where people who applied to them actually do go over time, right? And what they discovered was their biggest competitor was no college, right? Not someone, I mean, I've dabbled as a volunteer in, in alumni admissions where I went to college was East Coast Liberal Arts College. And they were always more concerned about, you know, are we losing more students to Princeton, Brown, or wherever, when in reality, and there, they're not losing people to no college, right? but at one of our major public universities. And I've now heard this when I brought this up, but this, it, it, this is apparently is, is quite common. So a third of the people they admitted among our state's high school seniors cared enough about these options to apply to a four-year university, and they were a strong enough candidate, they were admitted and they disappeared from a higher education pathway. So for me, that is like a, a group of people crying out in, in, in this voice. It comes to this, it's just data. But underneath that data is these people crying out saying, there is some obstacle or obstacles in my, our way. And so we're actually, we're actually going to do it. We've actually worked with that institution we're actually funding a very in-depth analysis and, and, and a sort of a, and, and a probe into like with focus groups, design sessions and all the rest in wow. partnership with, with the national group, national research evaluation group, MDRC, to try to get to the bottom of this. Because is this a population where they just can't fill out the FAFSA, which could be a, a meaningful chunk of this, but we're just guessing at that. Right. But what else is going on there? Because this is amazing that they go so far as to apply and be admitted and then they don't go anywhere. Yeah, like you're saying, I mean, figuring out what it is in that student experience that is having them literally do an about face and change directions because this is this is someone who saw themselves as a college going student. Like right. you're saying, did the application got admitted. And so at that point you have to figure out the finances and you need to figure out the personal components, right? right? Like, right. so which of it, which is it? And, and given some of the incredibly generous funding programs that you have in Washington, right? Like it just, it makes you wonder. I would, right. I cannot wait to see what you guys find yeah. because yeah. Yeah. this is something that everybody is struggling with. Um, is students opting out of higher education. And we know that more of our students are now labeled as non-traditional, right? With at least one factor of non-traditional, whether it's part-time working, a caregiver, right? All of these things. And so is it, is it something that we're, we're missing to, to your pillar of student supports, right? Like, is there something we're missing there? Yeah, yeah, and obviously we want to you know shed some light on this, but sometimes what you can be what you can find out is simple but awful process practices. Oh, you know, so I I, in in some of the so I've had this conversation now with with fifty people about my God, have have you ever heard this before? And what do you think about this? And one more than one has painted me for the scenario. Well, think of it this way: is first of all, we have to understand that. I mean, I, I as a college applicant myself over fifty years ago. I remember it was it was somewhat of a fragile process because I was bound and determined to get out of my home state, tiny New England state, and and head down head out to the big city somewhere and went ended up being Washington D.C. And I mean it wasn't exactly on my father's hit parade, you know, that I not go to the cheaper university of insert state name therein, right? Yeah. You know, 
And so it was a little touch and go. And I was, I was needed student loans. I needed scholarships. It all came together, you know, and of course that's when tuition was just $3,000 for the whole year. So just, oh my God, you know, right. (laughs) So I get in my deep distant memory, the sense of feeling fragile as a student applying with, you know, family support, but a little bit tenuous around what I really wanted to do. And I think we don't quite understand how fragile the position that so many applicants are these days where they're dealing with far more peer hostility, family indifference, you know, and it's reinforced by the notion of, dear God, we can't possibly pay for this. And there's this conventional wisdom that college costs $250,000 for five years, which yes, if you pay full, 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 full nominal tuition, which few people do, you know, at the top private institution in the country, that's what it could get to, right? And so it could be a simple notion that you're, you've been sort of marching, doing this fragile balance with people in your life, and then it gets into, into your senior year, you get the admission letter, you're all excited, and then the business office, which doesn't wait on the financial aid office, sends you the bill and yeah. gives and, and has, has financial aid TBD, right? Yeah. So the student suddenly has in their hands a bill for eleventh or five four or $5,000 yeah. for a semester or quarter, whatever it might be, you know, it could be... They suddenly have a bill in their hand. There's no offset for financial aid. They got to come up with a $250 deposit. Can they come up with $250? Will their parents give them $250 or when, when they realize there's a bill for $4,000? And, and the student's saying, but I'm going to get financial aid. I'm going to get financial aid. And the parents can say, well, show me. We're not talking. We're not, I, we, don't, we don't have $50 for our family. Right. And you want me to give you, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I just wonder if we'll find out that a lot of students get caught in that Bermuda Triangle of what the, the admissions office communication, business office billing, financial aid decision-making, and in the middle of that Bermuda Triangle, they just sink below the way. I think there is a lot of, of truth and risk there, that there are so many points of friction in figuring out how you are going to pay for college. And you're right, it can be it can be the littlest thing, right? When we look at the actual demographics of our of our high school students, we have more first generation, we have more low income, and we have more students of color who are, are coming out of high school populations. And we know that broadly, the, it's hard to have conversations about money when you don't have any, right? Like I knew I was supposed to go to college. I had no idea how I was going to pay to go to college. And I'll be honest, if I had been one of those students that had, it had been drummed into me that the cheapest alternative was always my in-state university. And I will tell you, I grew up in Vermont and the university of Vermont, when I looked at all of my options was the most expensive option for (laughs) me as an in-state student. It was cheaper for me or more affordable. I should say for me to go, I got a better financial aid package go out of state to a private institution. Yeah. Yeah. But if all I had done was apply to my in-state, I would have looked at that and been like, I can't afford this. I can't go to college. And so, so you're right. Figuring out how do we reduce the friction? And some of that is the, that exact communication process that you're talking about, right? Does anybody even know that that bill is going out to the student before financial, like before financial aid has been processed, how can we rejudge this communication and this flow process to reduce anxiety and stress for students and encourage a family conversation about affordability? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think what what what's what's hopeful here. It, it, well, first of all, we I learned this when for a number of years I was the head of an organization in on the East Coast whose job it was to connect. It was we we served all people in the state, mm -hmm. but, but particularly lower income families. How to connect people to programs, support services, public assistance. You know, the SNAP program, yeah. subsidized childcare. You know, and and it, you learn very quickly. And we were a massive call center in many ways, right? And you learn very quickly because I was not skilled enough to actually talk to somebody on the phone in those conversations, but I listened into a lot of them to understand the work we were doing and that kind of stuff. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people you serve. And if you try to impose your systemic culture and values, and this is the way we've always done it, you are not thinking about the people you're there to serve, right? Then the other more promising possibility that's out there is, is that if you do put yourself in the shoes of the people you serve, one of the things you'll learn is if you want to talk to younger generations now, you don't talk to them the way we've historically talked to people, right? Yep. So we, we now use a chatbot tool to, to speak to free and reduced price lunch students in high schools across the state about college going. The engagement with students and their, and their response and their interaction with it is phenomenal, right? Yep. We used to email these people, forget it, nothing. There are new tools out there from new, you know, new, new providers I've come across in my travels around the country in which, they're, in which they create you know, purpose-built social media environment for the applicants, for the applicants' parents. And so they have contact with peers and maybe they put a recent student in and all that kind of stuff. And you actually have a resource to support you to think about when something happens and you hit the bump, you've got somebody who knows a bit more about the bump than you do and can help talk you through it. And obviously when, when people talk about privilege, right, that's what they mean is that, you know, when when I was in a better position than many when I was applying for college, but my father was a high school grad. My mother went to the local teacher's college, took a bus across town, never lived in a college dorm, you know, whatever. And I was the first one to get, you know, go off and live in a college dorm and all that kind of stuff, right? But I had a lot of friends and I had a lot of teachers you, who were a lot younger than I thought they were at the time. You know, and I had all these supports, you know, for me. By the time my daughters, who are recent college grads now, when they were thinking about going to college, their support system was enormous, right? Just you know, they had, yeah. They had two college-educated parents, tons of aunts and uncles, neighbors, peers, the kind of blah, 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 blah. But that's not the case for so many students in this country. That So that the bump is not a bump that you work your way over. The bump becomes a mountain, a, a wall, and it keeps you keeps you where you are. No, that's absolutely true. And I think it's it's a great visual for, for people to keep in mind. I also, I've been talking a lot about the fact that our current student going population has faced financial traumatization multiple times. And it's, it's actually become chronic when you look at right there, they were old enough to remember the 08 recession. Right. And then we have everything that's gone on with COVID and been exacerbated. And so I think it's really important for me to keep talking about this and reminding our financial aid professionals in particular that they have an ability to help ensure that the financial aid process is not another form of financial traumatization that's yes. happening. And we can better humanize our engagement and our level of empathy to ensure that the students come back to us. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are tough, complicated pathways. And if oh. we don't acknowledge that, and get out of our own comfort zone, then we are failing in our responsibilities. Well, and and 
with all due respect to to a former person who held um, elected office, we also need our bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., to to help us out and to stop making the management of these systems so punitive. Yes. Right. Like everybody beats on school professionals for making a mistake. And and it's like we're trying to balance access and compliance. And it's it's not an easy job. It's like juggling flaming knives. I don't know what it's yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, for the insiders, when I say the verification problem in financial aid FAFSA, we have the federal government, you know, and this goes back a number of years, is just, is, is run amok in subjecting the FAFSA program by labeling it at high risk of fraud, which I think we have to wake up in this country and realize, okay, if somebody was supposed to get a $5,600 Pell Grant and they got 6200 because maybe some information wrong, who cares, right? Who cares? If somebody it's- is concocting made up individuals to bilk, yeah, that's fraud, Different. okay? Yeah, and it goes on in financial aid. I don't think it's as as wide as some people think it is. It's I don't think it's anything like Medicaid. But because no. of it, we have these this verification system, which makes life a hell for financial aid office offices and most importantly for students. Yeah, absolutely. Like I beat the drum on simplification, personalization, and increased access. Those are my three pillars. So if I were to give you a magic wand and say you can fix one thing in the, for college-going students, what would what would your magic solution be to help increase access and post-secondary completion? I think that I would give everyone a paid part-time work experience. I mean, it could be in the summer, it could be after school, it could be something. But, and this could even be for the 25-year-old who's thinking about, you know, going back, whatever it is. If you're able to work in an environment where you can see around you the benefit and, uh, and advantages being experienced by those who have the college credential, and you're working in a real-life experience where you are doing something in that setting and you're getting paid for it, but you're getting to, and, and you think it's an area you might be interested in, whether it's healthcare or manufacturing or technology, whatever it might be, you know, retail, anything, you know, that you actually get introduced to the, to the real life world of work and the connections between education of all sorts and work and career and being able to be a financially independent young adult. I think that real life experience, even if it's only 90 to 120 days, may be enough to be a game changer for a huge number of young people. I love that idea for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think you're right. Like it can, it can open people's eyes to opportunity, but two, I think it can also help direct them academically. I learned far too late in my college career, student teaching was my last semester. And I learned far too late that I did not want to be um, a public high school teacher. I wish I had wish I had known that before. Yes. But I I do love that idea of connecting and then being able to see what the end result can look like for them. Right. So I love that. Mm-hmm. What is the best way for listeners to learn more about Wasac and or connect with you outside of the show? Well, of course, we have, like everybody, we have our wonderful website. And in, in the government world, it has the wonderful domain name of wsac.wa, Washington, 
www.gov.gov. And not only will you find a lot about our programs, it's not the greatest user-friendly website. That's that bedevils, I think, most government agencies in many ways, because our we're, our web presence is asked to serve three or five or 10 or 112 different audiences, right? Yes. You will find information a lot of what we do. You will also find uh, contact information because like many government agencies, we have a directory of our agency with both you know phone number and, a, and, a, and an email address. And I'm always on, not, not to tout any one particular platform or another, you, you can always check me out on LinkedIn and you'll find me there with my occasional you know, musings on the future of higher education in Washington <laughs> around the country. Well, we love that. We will make sure that all of those links are provided for listeners in the show notes. Michael, I want to thank you for, for taking the time and sharing some of the, the programs and initiatives you guys are tackling in Washington. I really love the grant program and the fact that it makes room to cover some of those basic needs and, and feel like that's, that's a game changer and I know it's not easy for other states to find the money, but I think it's a necessity if we really want to start to tackle college completion. So I appreciate you sharing that. I hope that you'll come back when you have the results from your survey and find out why those 30% of students are, are walking away from college. Um, Very happy us. to do that. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought you, I thought you said come back when we have the results from our community partnerships. And I, I can only say, I hope my career lasts that long because this work takes time, but we will have insights from the study of those students who don't go anywhere. We'll have those within the year. Yeah. Oh, well, definitely. I'm going to, so I'm going to start following you on LinkedIn if I don't already and make sure I track that. For everybody else, if you enjoyed today's show, the best way to show your support is to follow, like, or add a review on your favorite podcast platform. Also consider sharing this episode with your network to keep the conversation going. If you're looking for more ways to join the conversations around student financial success, consider joining our Slack community, LinkedIn group, or tagging content with the hashtag student financial success. I'm always looking for additional guest feedback, questions, and topic suggestions. Please reach out. My contact information, as always, is available in today's show notes. 